Well, good morning, church. We're coming out of one series in Isaiah, and as I probably say every single time there's a new series, I love where we are, but I love where we're going next. And I'm going to love this one, and we get to the next one, I'm going to love that one too. But I'm excited about our new series and on discipleship, on follow me, Jesus' words, and what that means uh, to be a disciple of Christ. And that's what we're going to be exploring. You're going to hear more on that in a moment. But this is kind of an introduction to that this morning. It was kind of added just this past week of how I wanted to introduce this. So that's where we're going uh, today. Now, Tim Hansel, with creativity shows us uh, what the selection process might have looked like in modern day terms if Jesus used a management consultant firm in the choosing of his 12 disciples. All right, you'll see it up here on the screen. To Jesus, son of Joseph, from Jordan Management Consultants. Dear sir, Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have taken our battery of tests. We have not only run the results through our computer, but have also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologists and consultants. It is a staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concepts. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience and managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it's our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness. He meets people well. He has a a keen business mind and has contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely, Jordan Management Consultants. Well... We see this morning Jesus' selection of 12 disciples in Mark chapter 3. And if you're not there in your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 3. It's in the New Testament. You have Matthew, then you have Mark. Go to Mark chapter 3. And before, as I've already alluded to, we launch into a new sermon series on what it means to follow Jesus. I want to introduce this subject by looking at Jesus' picking of his team. It wasn't what we might call a dream team. The Dirty Dozen. Jesus' 12-man roster. Look rather ordinary at best, but really look more of a ragtag band of misfits at worst. I mean, it's quite a group. As Jesus is teaching them about servant leadership, they're fighting over who deserves the most favored position. After each miracle, they fret about the next difficult situation. 
Can he feed the 5,000? What about the 4,000? They were self-serving, competitive, forgetful, slow to learn, and even slower to unlearn. It appeared at times that they slowed Jesus down. Many watching these 12 characters must have wondered, what good can come out of this? I mean, do we really have to worry about this team? I mean, they're going to be washed up and finished in a few years. It's apparent that Jesus didn't pick his team based on their credentials and skills. You wouldn't have found their names in the local yearbook under the category of those who would be most likely to succeed. And so I'm introducing our next sermon series by looking at this passage in Mark chapter 3. Not only for us to see how Jesus used ordinary people to bring the message of redemption to a lost world, but also to trace something remarkable about Jesus' strategy for making disciples. And if you've been around here at this church for any length of time, you should be aware that why, as to why we exist as a church, and that is for the purpose of making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That is our mission, vision, existence. However you want to look at it, that's what's driving us. It might not be very profound kind of mission statement, may likely not even unique, but discipleship lies at the heart of our existence at a church. Listen, without an emphasis on disciple making, there is no church. But it takes one to make one. You can't make a disciple if you want to disciple yourself. See, all disciples are Christians, but not all Christians are disciples. Yet we're called to that if we profess the name of Christ. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, all who are called to salvation are called to discipleship. No exceptions, no excuses. So we have to ask, well, what does is, what is a disciple look like? What are the marks of a disciple? Well, that's what we'll be looking at over the summer months. And we're going to narrow the lens to the words of Jesus. That when Jesus says, follow me, what is he calling us to? So we'll be exploring that over the next three months. But before we go there, I want us to look at what is foundational to discipleship. Both being a disciple and making a disciple. And that brings us to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. I'm going to pick it up at verse 7, a few verses before the selection process, and it sets us beautifully for Jesus' picking of his team. Now this morning, we're going to go from the lakeside to the mountainside, right? Lakeside to the mountainside, and it's on the mountainside where I'm going to spend most of our time this morning. So first of all, at the lakeside, at the lakeside, an impressed crowd, an impressed crowd, All right, look with me, uh, verse 7, Mark chapter 3. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Now notice here that Mark records for us that it was a large crowd. Now, large might be an understatement, depending on what you think of as a large crowd. For some of you, walking into a room of 20 people is a large crowd. Well, it's likely, many have estimated, that there are thousands, 
if not 10,000, perhaps thousands of people gathered here at the lakeside. Now, what was the fuss all about? Why this fascination with Jesus? Well, in verses 10 and 11, I'm not going to read for you, but they inform us that word was out that, that, that Jesus was in the business of healing people and casting out demons. That will draw a crowd. Jesus grew in popularity, and, as we, and since we often measure success by numbers, we would say Jesus was successful. Did you notice as you go through the gospel, that Jesus was constantly trying to break away from the crowd. You notice that? He's constantly trying to break from the crowd. Look at verse 9. It tells us that again. Verse 9. Be because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him. That's his getaway boat. Have this boat ready. I'm taking off on it. Why? To keep the people from crowding him or literally uh, crushing, crushing him. And so Jesus' ministry was impressive, we might say. But that wasn't the primary reason he came. He didn't come to impress, but to impact. Howard Hendricks put it this way. He says, you can impress people at a distance, but you can impact them only up close. And that's where we go next. We go from the lakeside to the mountainside. And at the mountainside, we see the strategy for impact. We see a strategy for impact. Now, as we come to verse 13, we are invited into Jesus' picking of his team and his strategy for impacting the world. Follow along with me, verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. Now, I want, to, I want to us to notice something that's not really in the text, but of the custom of their day, that the, in the selection process, Jesus was kind of going against the common practice at that time. It was customary that when someone wanted to study under a particular rabbi or a particular teacher, he would have to apply, Some, similar to, to someone applying for admissions to a college. You'd apply. And if the rabbi accepted that application, that person's request, he could then learn from that rabbi, from that teacher. That's not how Jesus does it. These, these disciples didn't apply for it. Jesus does the recruiting. He picked his team of men. It says here he selected those he wanted to tutor. Did Jesus choose the best of the best? In the movie, Miracle, I'm sure many of you are familiar with it, it's based on the true story of the 1980 United States uh, Olympic hockey team and, and their journey uh, to defeating the Soviet Union and, and eventually winning the gold medal. Well, in the scene that I'm thinking of here, Coach uh, Herb Brooks is selecting the players for his team. And while evaluating selecting his players, his choice of players was questioned by his assistant. His assistant said to him, Herb, you're missing the best players. You're overlooking the best players. And then the well-known line here, Herb Brooks replied, I'm not looking for the best players. I'm looking for the right ones. Big difference. Jesus chose the right ones for his purposes. In Jesus' case, he chose 12 men. You've got 12 
nondescript, ordinary people who would normally have nothing to do with each other. And Jesus says, you'll do. You'll do. Verse 14. And he appointed 12, designating them to be apostles, which simply means sent out once. That they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. And then in verses uh, 16 through 19, I'm not going to read here, it mentions by name the 12 disciples. 12 of them. Now, you know, there's, there's some want to talk about this and, and say Jesus deciding on the 12. That was symbolic of the 12 tribes, maybe. Or, or there's some other reason they chose 12 and, and we want a numerology and we kind of want to do all kinds of things. Maybe. We're, we're really not told. One thing is certain though. Out of the many who followed him, Jesus called the few to invest in. Now, it, it wasn't that his public ministry was incidental by any means. Many people came to believe in him through the miraculous signs. In John chapter 2, verse 23, you can turn there, it'll also be on the screen. In John chapter 22, uh, John, John chapter 2, verse 23, it tells us that many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. And so we see that there are many who follow because of the miraculous signs. But notice, from the many who followed him, Jesus called the few. The very next verse. That same passage in verse 24 of John 2, it tells us, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He wasn't going to entrust himself to the whole crowd, but he did entrust himself to 12 men and perhaps even others. Now, it's difficult, is it not, to build close relationships with 1,000 people (laughs) or 100 people? Or even 30 people? Jesus is intentional about his strategy for impacting the world. He chose a few from the crowd of followers to invest in. Now, I don't want to stretch this further than intended. But I do believe we can learn something from this as it relates to this matter of discipleship. All of us have a limited amount of time in which we must choose how we will spend that. Since we cannot invest an equal amount of time in everyone, and since disciples are made in up-close relationships, we can only do that a few at a time. We shouldn't pass over too quickly a phrase that occurs in verse 14, for it speaks volumes of Jesus' method of discipleship. Let me read it again. And he appointed 12 designating them apostles, now get this, that they might be with him. We really need to kind of just let that sink in. That they might be with him. Yes, Jesus gave them a cause to live for. They would be sent out to preach and to authenticate their preaching by the practice of driving out demons and and, and doing miracles. But what was his method to accomplish this? It's not too complicated. Before he would send out them to preach, his priority was simple, right? That they might be with him. With him. Speaks of, of, of intimacy. Speaks of companionship. Speaks of friendship. Now, there are two sides to this coin here of being, he chose them to be 
might be with him. There's two sides to this coin. One side is that Jesus in his humanity is no isolationist. Jesus enjoyed friendships. Jesus enjoyed the company of other people. Now growing up, an icon for machoism and manliness was John Wayne. He's your guy. In an article that Dan passed on to me, it references one of John Wayne's most renowned westerns, The Searchers. And at the end of The Searchers, the, the kidnapped girl who was a niece of Ethan uh, uh, Edwards, who was played by John Wayne, a kidnapped girl has been rescued and a family reunited. And as the closing music swells, it shows you here, Wayne's uh, character looks around at his king, at his kin, and then people who have other people to lean on. And then he walks off toward the dusty West Texas horizon, lonesome and alone. This article goes on to say, that's a classic example of a fundamental American tall tale. That of a nation built on notions of individualism, a male-dominated story filled with loners and rugged individualists who suck it up, do what needs to be done, and then ride off into the sunset and like it that way. And it says, in reality, loneliness in America can be deadly. Amen, amen, and amen. Absolutely. Church, we need to surrender this rugged individualism. It's not just for guys. But we need to surrender this rugged individualism. We must let go of this notion that we can just go at it alone. I got this. I don't need anybody else. And, th and, th and that's really what's prompting a, a summer study that I'm going to have for men. Um, and there's going to be a follow one, uh, another one as well for women. And it speaks to the need we have for friends. You might go, oh, I have all the friends. I need I have my spouse. I'm good. Don't buy that. See, our greatest impact, church, will not be through isolationism. Jesus was not an isolationist. Now, that's one side of the coin that they might be with him. But there's another side of that coin, of that phrase, is the significance of this to Jesus' strategy to impact the world. Other than the cross and, and, and his resurrection, there was nothing, I believe, in Jesus' three years of ministry more important than what he's doing here with these 12 guys. They needed to be with him before going out for him. Be with him before going out for him. That was Jesus' modus operandi. And, and, and I would say it's still the same today. Jesus wants us to be with him so we can go out for him. And then you're going to take away this morning. That's, that's one right there. Jesus wants us to be with him so we can go out for him. It is no small thing what Jesus models for us here. And if you know my heart at all and have seen it, this is what I'm after. My own life and for us as a church. See, the desire for these guys was to be brought into the closest association as possible with the life of Jesus. Before they do anything else, they must accompany him. They must learn to be with their master, watching him and modeling his behavior. He let them see his heart in action. He let them understand how his mind works. He invited them to join him on a journey of dependence upon his father. They were going to travel with him. They were going to learn from him. They were going to eat with him. They were going to live with him. 
They would be with Jesus when he stubbed his toe. (laughs) They'd be with Jesus when he waited in line. They'd be with Jesus when he received too much change back from a sale. When he was hungry, when he was tired, when he was peopled to death, they'd be right there. They were with him when he was criticized, when he was misunderstood, and when he was being set up by some smooth religious characters. See, Jesus didn't just simply yell out instructions to his followers. He got up close to them. The best way for them to learn was to spend time with Jesus. Jesus calls a few friends to be with him in order to go out for him. The impact? Well, consider this. Countless of millions and millions and millions and millions of people who have affirmed Jesus as Lord can trace it back to its beginning on this mountainside. Consider the vastness of this impact on Christianity throughout the world. See, church, don't underestimate the power of a life lived in his presence. Jesus wants us to be with him so we can go out for him. All right, what does that mean for us? All right, let's get some application here if we haven't already. I want to leave you with some practical, foundational principles for discipleship. I don't claim they're profound, but they come out of the text for us this morning. First of all, the first foundational principle for discipleship is we must be with him. We must be with him. We cannot bypass companionship with Jesus. This is foundational for discipleship. Do you want to be used by God to impact the lives of others? There are no shortcuts. Get to know your friend Jesus. Spend time with him. Read read the word in an effort to get to know him. It's all about spending time with Jesus because you can't make a disciple unless you are a disciple. It takes one to make one. The call then is to get close to Jesus. You can't live off of others' experience with Christ. Do you hear that? You cannot live off of others' experience with Christ. It's not sustainable. You need to experience it for yourself. 1958, America's first commercial jet air service began with a flight of the Boeing 707. A month after that first flight... A traveler on a piston engine, propeller-driven DC-6 airline struck up our conversation with a fellow passenger. That fellow passenger happened to be a Boeing engineer. So the traveler, he's curious. He asked him about this new aircraft. And the engineer proudly went on and on and on about the extensive testing Boeing had done on the jet engine before bringing it into commercial service. And and he spoke of Boeing's rich experience with engines. And he went on and on just talking about this this, this new plane. And and the traveler, he was impressed. I mean, he was very impressed. So he asked the engineer, so what did you think of it when you flew on it for the first time? And the engineer replied, oh, I haven't flown on it yet. (laughs) I think I'll wait until it's been in service a while. Can we really tell others about Jesus Christ if we really aren't experiencing the richness of that relationship with him ourselves? We don't just live off others' experience and it's not sustainable. In the old um, Boston Garden where the Bruins, the Celtics, once played their games, I once found these cheap tickets to a Celtics game. It wasn't until I arrived, I sat down in my seat, that I realized why they were so cheap. (laughs) 
They were, they were as far back in, in the arena as possible. And, 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 the, and the roof was just like six inches over my head. I mean, I couldn't, it was awful. I couldn't see anything, really. I missed the action for myself. I, I mean, I could hear the sounds. I could feel some of the excitement. I could see others who could clearly see the game. I was kind of living off of that, but I still felt a little sense of detachment from the action. Now, I had a friend who once sat behind the pole during a Bruins game. That's an obstructed view. You don't kind of see much. You live off the other people's excitements. And I thought, are we that spectator at a game with terrible seats, relying on what others are watching and seeing and experiencing? Or is it what we see and experience ourselves? He calls you to get close to him. Jesus calls us to be with him. That is our highest priority. For everything else, your parenting, your marital relationship, your friendships, how you are at work, how you are during the week, your ministry, that's all the overflow of your relationship with him, of time spent with him. Now, why would we not want to spend time with him? Out of love, he gave everything so we could be forgiven, accepted, and empowered. The whole package. When we see what he's done for us, there truly is no greater privilege than that we get to spend time with him. All right, first foundational principle of discipleship, we must be with him. Secondly, the second one is disciples are primarily, primarily made in relationships. Disciples are primarily made in relationships. Have you noticed we don't meet, we email? We don't call, we text. We hide behind the screen and we call them friends. Just being involved with people. I mean, technology is nice, yeah, it's necessary. But there's no substitution for getting together with people. That is if you really want to make a lasting impact. That's for me as well as for you. And while I must always... And I do, while I must always prioritize the preaching aspect of what I do, there's also priority given to the ones I am pouring my life into for a time. And I have to constantly revisit that. And I am again. But I ask you, who are you intentionally pouring your life into? Are you inviting others to see who you really are and to join you on your journey of imitation of Christ? I mean, to the ones closest to you, how much time are you spending with them to make a difference? What are you doing today that will guarantee an impact for Christ in the next generation as far as it depends on you? See, our greatest impact is going to be up close. And all of us can do that. Chris Osborne said, you can disciple anywhere you are. It doesn't matter what your church size is. All right. How do we know this? How do we know to whom we invest our time and energy, energy beyond the ones already placed in our care? Well, there's one thing that Mark doesn't tell us that Luke mentions in the parallel account in Luke chapter 6, verse 12. And that is... That before Jesus selected these 12 disciples, he broke away from the crowd to do what? Pray. Before his selection, it says, he spent the night praying to his Father in heaven. 
You see, these guys here, they weren't taken from a sign-up sheet or in response to a bulletin announcement looking for volunteers. No, after spending a night in prayer, Jesus called to him those he wanted. And so it begs the question, how much time am I spending in prayer about those with whom I should surround myself and pour my life into? Perhaps if we spend more time praying about the people we're to get together with and and spend time with and, and pour our lives into, we would spend less time running frantically from this person to that person, touching them only superficially. All right, I need to get to the last foundational principle of discipleship. We're to be with him to better reflect him. We are to be with him to better reflect him. Listen, we're going to talk about this throughout, but discipleship is not simply trying to be a better version of ourselves. But it's to be a more accurate reflection of him. Dallas Willard defined discipleship this way. He said, discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. And that's what happened with these disciples Jesus chose, at least 11 of them. It tells us on one occasion in the book of Acts, which is after Pentecost, this is Pentecost Sunday by the way, but it's after Pentecost and after Jesus left these men to carry out the task, but tells us in, in Acts chapter 4.13 that, that Peter and John, they're under scrutiny by the Sanhedrin. And it says in, in Acts 4.13, when they, meaning the Sanhedrin, saw the courage of Peter and John, realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note of what? That these men had been with Jesus. That's what we're after. They took note that they'd been with Jesus. They couldn't deny it. They couldn't ignore that these men were with Jesus. Peter and, and John, they didn't have, appear to have any particular intel, intellectual talents or uh, they weren't highly educated. The ones Jesus chose were distinguished by one thing. That is, they were ordinary. They have that in common. Not one of them renowned for scholarship. Not one of them is renowned for sophistication. Not one of them had a track record as an orator or some kind of theologian. There was no pastor in the group when he picked his team. No Bible teacher. We might say they were a bunch of nobodies. And um, Rudolph, and and no one corrected me first service, so it's got to be right where I'm getting this from. And Rudolph, in the 60s version of Rudolph, there's millions of them, but that one, there's the island of the misfit toys, right? It's an island that's dedicated to the goof-ups, the imperfect, flawed toys. Because they just didn't fit. There was the spotted elephant, (laughs) There was, a, there was a, a choo-choo train with, um, with, with um, a square wheels, right? They, they, they had a, um, there was this, um, not in a jack-in-the-box, but it was a um, Charlie-in-the-box. They had a boat that didn't stay afloat. Ah, misfits. Misfits. You know, on the church sign, we could really say all misfit toys are welcomed here. They're really good. These guys were not your model of perfection. But they are a model of promise that God can use you, he can use me. The genius 
of Jesus' choice of these guys is that we look at them, it's like looking in the mirror. And it may be disturbing to see someone like Judas, who was within close proximity to Jesus, yet betrayed him. But we can be encouraged by someone like Peter that reminds us of the royal mess we can make, yet still become a rock within God's purposes. See, to most, the 12 were more trouble than they were worth. Well, everyone except Jesus. Now, likely I've shared with you at least a portion of this before. It's part of my story. But it's of one man who took the risk and chose to spend time with me up close. For most, I looked unpromising. Many wrote me off. I wouldn't have blamed them. But this pastor, who had hundreds of other things to do, came alongside of me to mentor me when I had so many rough edges. I look at it, I think of it and I go, man, he must have had so much patience. I botched up youth events that I was in charge of. I was quite unimpressive in public speaking. And I, I am absolutely certain that I embarrassed him sometimes. And I can only wonder that some of the deacons and the elders, they might have gathered around him at times and said, you know what, maybe you ought to think of someone else investing in. I don't think this is going to work. He gave me a chance. And I am in ministry today largely because of this one man's willingness to invest in me and impact me up close. Church, we exist not to impress, but to impact others for Christ. We do that best by being up close. That was Jesus' priority. Making disciples is to be our priority, or else there is no church. It takes one to make one, and that's where we're going for the next few months. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that you are willing to come up close and save us. You didn't do that by just yelling out instructions or throwing a book at us or handing us even a track. You came alongside of us. You showed us yourself. And because of that, our lives have changed. And we thank you so much for that. And, that, and, that, and then, Lord, that you, that you entrust to us the ministry of reconciliation. Wow. We're a bunch of clay vessels. We're misfits. And the beauty of it is, though, that you can use us for your purposes. And as we're going to sing, there's no story you can't redeem you take us in our brokenness. You give us a future and you give us meaning. You give us a place in your purposes and plans. And so God, thank you for that. Use us in the same way to impact others for Christ, I pray in your name. Amen.